We have been in this book of Ruth now for, this is week number four. We have been looking at this story, uh, redeemed the story or a story of redemption. I, I could have called it, the t- just titled it Ruth. Excuse me, it's redeemed the story of Ruth, but it's also, it is a story of redemption. It's, it's what God has been doing in this person's life. And, and we, we, we heard the wrap-up of the story. We're going to go back through that uh, a little bit here, obviously, today. And we're going to see a little more detail. But I don't know if, you, um, if you've been kind of following with us through the story. You heard the story of this woman married to this man. Um, I think the best way I can tra- uh, tra- or pronounce his name is Elimelech. It's... It's not an easy name to say, but this man Elimelech and his wife Naomi, they, they go on a sojourn out of their country. They go live in another country. Uh, they, have, they have sons, but Elimelech dies. The sons get married. They die. I mean, the woman finds herself in bitter circumstances, uh, comes home, but she comes home with her daughter-in-law. Now, how is she going to feed herself and her daughter-in-law? But the daughter-in-law insists. She, she loves Ruth. And she says, I want to be part of your people. I want your God to be my God. They, they return back at the beginning of the, the barley harvest, this, this time where, where everyone's working out in the fields. And so Ruth does that too. And Ruth needs a man out there. A, a, a landowner, a, a good guy, a worthy man named Boaz. And we, we as we're reading the story, we're thinking, well, now here's some possibilities. A young widow and then a, and then a worthy man. And they seem to hit it off and they seem to like each other. And what's going to happen in this story? And then Naomi comes up with that plan. You remember that from last week? Here's your plan. Here's, here's your strategy, Ruth. Sneak into his... Well, it wasn't quite a bedroom, but he's going to be sleeping outside uh, on the threshing floor. And in, in, the, in the middle of the night, after he's fast asleep, you, you go to him and you uncover his feet with you know, on the blanket. You lay down there and then he'll tell you what to do. And this strategy actually worked out. In terms of they had a conversation, um, she expressed her interest in him and said, hey, I am your maidservant. And I'm available to you. You are a redeemer. You are a person who can rescue us out of our difficult circumstances. And so Boaz says, hey, you're a worthy woman. So I will do what you ask me to do. Except there's one little hitch. Legally, there's another redeemer who's closer than I am, who has the right of redemption. So then we get into this story here. Boaz doesn't say, but forget about him. We'll, we'll do this thing. I like you, you like me. Hey, what's stopping us? He says, no, we're going to do this properly. And so how is this going to work out? And that's kind of the question that was hanging over us as we walked out the door last week. How is this going to turn out? Here's Naomi and Ruth talking about, here's what happened. Here's what Boaz said he would do. Will this work? Will, Will it happen? Well, that's why the rest of the story is told, right? We, we start out uh, at the beginning of the story with 
Boaz going to the gate of the people. This, this gate, this city gate in these ancient towns or, or small cities um, was a large open area. It was the entrance to the walled city. There wasn't a town square, so to speak. There wasn't a city park or a gazebo or an amphitheater. There wasn't a large, a large gathering place like even what we have here today. Uh, there was a city gate with little rooms or alcoves where people might, might uh, stay or watch the gate. And there's, there's an open place so that there's plenty of room for people to come in. And, and then that became, kind of became the marketplace. That kind of became the place where they, they conducted business. Um, we, before we moved in here... For the last five years, we've been in the city hall of Moxie, the, the community center, that, that little room. And right next to that room where our kids have been playing for the last few years is the city council chamber, right? That's where they do, they, they, dis, they discuss city business. And the gate was like that. It was just an all-purpose place for all of these different things. And there's Boaz saying, let me get you, hey, you, the, the redeemer who happened to come by, uh, come into the city, or maybe he was going out to the city of the field. Turn aside here. He grabs ten men of the elders, the leading men of the city. You sit here. And they sit down, and then Boaz proposes this, this scenario. Here's what's going on. Naomi came back from the country of Moab. She is selling the parcel of land. She has this inheritance, but she hasn't been able to develop it. She has no male heirs to work the land. It, it needs to go on so that, that her family inheritance will continue on. Um, somebody needs to buy that. It belonged to Elimelech. And so I thought I would come here and tell you to, to buy it. You're, you're the rightful, you know, kind of like the first in line heir, so to speak. Um, you're the one who has the right to redeem it. So do it in the presence of all these people. Here we go. Here we got the witnesses. People are coming in and out. Probably people are starting to gather around. Hey, there's a little meeting going on. Let's see what's going on here. And so if you will do it, tell me. But if you don't, then I, I come after you. I'm next in line, and I'll do it. So, if you're reading this story, and you're thinking about this, you're thinking, well, what in the world? Isn't this story about Ruth? What's the deal with the inheritance? What's the deal with this parcel of land? What's the deal with that section of the community field? Why is he, why is he, why is he worked up about that? Why is he concerned about this field? What about Ruth? That's a good question. That's the question I'd be asking if I'm reading this. That's the question that I think the narrator wants us to ask. Wait a minute. Wait, what, what's going on here? So then the man says, I'll redeem it. I'll do it. Sure. That would be great. I'll add that field to my property. It'll be great. It'll expand my inheritance. Wonderful. And then... Boaz, in verse 5, says, well, just so you know, that on that day that you buy the field, you also acquire Ruth Moabite. She's a widow of the dead. 
And you do that in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, which is a way to say she becomes your wife and you're going to have children in her, her husband's name. Oh, so then you see the tone shift a little bit, right? Verse 6, the Redeemer says, I cannot redeem it for myself. Ooh, I can't do that. Lest I impair my own inheritance. If I do that, then what might happen to my own inheritance? Not only will I have to take care of, now not only will I have to take care of this woman Ruth, and then her children, then her children will have Elimelech's name and not my name, and what's going to happen to me? I'm going to spend all of these... In other words, this doesn't sound like a, a deal that I'm willing to make. So you go ahead and do it. Boaz set up all of the legal necessities for the transaction. He had everything there. And then, just when we think, what's the deal? Property, property, property. He mentions Ruth. The real concern of the story. The narrator's concern and God's concern. Redemption, friends, is about... People. Redemption is about people. It's the property is important. The land was very important to Israel. In fact, when they were portioning out the land and saying, you, this tribe is going to go there and this tribe is going to go there, how did they make those decisions? Well, this tribe has a lot of people. They're going to need more land to settle in. All of the land, all of the property, all of that served the people. The point of it was it was for the people. And the story of Ruth is not just about an inheritance of, of land. It's not just who's going to put their name on the deed. It's about people. It is not, it is not a hard step to go from that to this. Right here, in this building. Here we are, in our new building, and we're excited about it. And it's awesome, right? And we're working out some of the kinks, and I can't even figure out how to work my microphone today. And, and there's all kinds of wonderful things, and there's a little bit of an echo in here, as you can tell, because, you know, it's just... But isn't it wonderful and isn't it beautiful? And we've been waiting for so long. I mean, we've told this story many times. I, I drove through this, this town in May of 2013. And I looked at this property and I made a mental note. This would be a wonderful place to, to host a church. And my wife and I in November of that year drove by here again. And we prayed right in front of this place on the sidewalk when this was an old storefront building. And we said, wouldn't this be... Wonderful, And we dreamed about it, and we thought about it, and we said, no way, it'll never happen. It's not ours. It doesn't belong to us. And then, through God's miracle of circumstances, it did become ours. The money was there, and, and the offer was there, 
And here we are in a brand new building. We could never have imagined that. And isn't that exciting? Yes. But the mission of God's people is not this building. The church is not this building. Everyone asks me, so when is the church going to be ready? I said, the church, the church is already there. It's the people. We've been, we've been a church for more than five years, six years almost. We've been worshiping together and gathering together and learning together. The church is God's people. The church isn't a building. That's an important distinction to make. But here's why this building is stunning to me. Because I think of the people who built it. And the people who gave. This building does reflect people. There are people who've slaved away. They've, they've, spent, they've spent money and they've spent time and energy. And, and we, have, we have argued about stuff in here. And we've rejoiced about stuff in here. And people have been a part of this. It's been all about people. And when we think of this building, I want you to think that is where the people of God gather. They're called the River Church. But more than that, they're children of God. And it's the people who we care about. If this building burned down tonight, the church would still be here. It's the people. Please don't burn down the building. (laughs) Don't do that. That would be bad. Redemption is about people. Jesus didn't die for this building. Do you hear what I'm saying? Church. He cares about you. He cares about your souls. He cares about your families. And he cares about the families that are all around this neighborhood. He cares about Moxie Market. Don't park in front of their, um, their building on Sunday morning. I just want to remind you. And he cares about the people at the barn door. Don't park in front of their spot either on Sunday mornings. Okay. He cares about Moxie. He cares about East Valley. He cares about the city of Yakima. He cares about the people of this world for whom he died. He is not making sons and daughters of pews or bank accounts or buildings or rooms or sound systems or projectors. I would like him to redeem some of the some of the stuff in here. That would be nice, you know. We could upgrade. But God loves people. It is about people. And it is so easy for us to forget that. It's also easy for us. Let me say this word. It is also easy for us to assume that others have forgotten it too. I could go on and on about this. Because of all the conversations that we've had within our church family. Especially some of our leaders. And and, um, some care about buildings and things like that more than others. You know, it's like, my concern, we got people who get work done, okay? Get jobs done, get tasks accomplished. And it would be easy to say, oh, they don't really care about people. But that's not true at all. It's not true at all. Boaz. 
we might read that at first and think, Boaz, what's, why do you care about that property? It's a person. But he didn't forget about Ruth. God didn't forget about Ruth. And God hasn't forgotten about you and the people in this church and the people in this community. And we shouldn't either. Redemption is about people. Redemption also ensures perpetuation. That's a weird one. What the heck? How, how's, this, how's this point of the sermon going to go? But it's there in the, in, in the message, or in the, in the Bible, several times. One, in, in Boaz's words to the, the would-be redeemer in verse 5, uh, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead. And then... Later on, when Ruth, or excuse me, when Boaz says, okay, I will do this. I do this. I, I, I accept the responsibility of this property. And I also accept the responsibility of Ruth. And I ex- ex- accept the responsibility of, of the dead. Those who went before. Those who are long gone to perpetuate their name. To keep their memory alive. To keep that inheritance alive. This is a really tricky one. Because I, I, I fall short of this. I, I fall short of this way too often. Like, I, I enjoy history. I love it. But it's not the first thing that comes to my mind. I'm thinking about tomorrow almost all the time. I'm usually my head's in the doggone clouds. And people are like, well, what's going on, Pastor? What's going on, Michael? Where, where are you? And I'm like, I'm, I'm in a dream world somewhere where things are really wonderful. Won't that be great? And I don't do a good job of perpetuating the memory of those who came before. I really don't. But God was concerned about it. God cared about it. The people of God cared about it. They're always talking about their ancestors. Here, here, here's what's going on. I mean, how many times does the word the dead show up in this passage? Four times. I count it for you. There you go. You don't even have to count it. I do the work for you. Four times he's talking about the dead. He's talking about Elimelech and Kilion and Malon. Say those names three times fast. I dare you. He's talking about them. And then the witnesses and the elders, they said, when, when all of this sort of wraps up and gets resolved and they know that Boaz is going to do this thing, they're talking about Rachel and Leah and Tamar and Perez. And maybe some of those people, you're like, who in the heck are these people? But they were significant people in the story of God, in the story of Israel, in the story of the tribe of Judah. They meant something to them. And they didn't want their memory to go away. So, Boaz steps up. And, and there's this, this ancient cousin, I won't say much about it because it's mentioned here. Um, and maybe some subtle references in other places in the Old Testament. But here, a, a, a shoe or a sandal. Or, um, please don't throw your sandal at me. Justin wants to throw a sandal at me. But a shoe or, or, or actually literally foot gear. Um, 
is being passed from one person to another. And Boaz, in accepting that, he's claiming responsibility. That's what he's doing. The word buy, the word purchase, the word acquire, I have bought Ruth to be my wife. We think, oh gosh, what's going on? They're buying women. and What's happening here? I, please, get over that and accept that. Really what's being communicated is here, he is taking responsibility as a man for this woman and for her family and for her dead husband's memory to perpetuate their memory and their inheritance. He is endangering his own inheritance, his own property, his own everything that he has. And he's saying, I am going to perpetuate the name of Malon in his inheritance. We don't... The narrator doesn't tell us anything about him having any other sons, maybe a, another, maybe he had a widow, it would be kind of cool if it was a, a widow and a widower in the story, but that's not how the story goes, okay? So, he has no children, but he will, and his son will inherit everything he has and will inherit the dead, the inheritance of the dead, the property of the dead, and he takes responsibility for it. That's what he's saying. When he takes his wife, he's taking responsibility. Kind of like when we say our wedding vows, do you take so-and-so to be your lawfully wedded husband? Do you take so-and-so to be your... You don't own them, okay? But you are responsible for them. And that's what Boaz is doing. And then he receives that blessing. And they say, may the Lord make the woman, Ruth, like Rachel and Leah. Who are these women? They're the, they together built up the house, or the, the household, the, the family of Israel. They were, they were Jacob's wives. Now that's a, that's a complicated story. Um, check that one out in the book of Genesis. Um, but they had children, and their children became the nation of Israel. And he said, may Ruth be like that. And look at this nation around us. You've got 12 tribes all, occupying this inheritance all over the ancient Near East. And we are numerous. And may Ruth be like that. May God do that for her. And then may, may your house, your household, your family line be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah. And if you think the story of, of Jacob having Rachel and Leah, two wives and then two other concubines, just think about, read about the story of Judah and Tamar. Oof. On your own. Read about it and then share it with your family. That's good family devotions. <laughs> Tamar, who incidentally, I'll just say this, was Judah's daughter-in-law, has Judah's Children, sons. And Perez is this prominent son who is in the line of the family here living in Bethlehem at this time. And, and, he's, and they're saying, 
May you be like them, because look at our tribe, look at our family, look at our clans. They're numerous. Be blessed like them. And, and here's what they say. The Lord, may the Lord give you that by this young woman. This perpetuation, I, I, I got to emphasize that this idea of perpetuation is an Old Testament form of blessing God in the form of remembrance. We are remembering where we came from. We are remembering the people who served. We are, we are remembering those who, who, who were with us at one time but are not now. We're remembering them because God is or God did work through them and he is, he is working through us still. I, um, I got a text message this morning, and I, I didn't get permission to read it, but I'm going to do it anyway, because um, he'll, he, he won't mind. Um, Luke Safford was a, was a pastor of Terrace Heights Baptist Church uh, until December of 2014, and um, we, uh, we were just blessed to 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 know him and to serve with him. Many, some of you who are members of Terrace Heights Baptist Church before we planted the River Church, um, you, you know him and you loved him and served with him. And he's a brother and, and, um, and uh, he, uh, he and I had that conversation back in May of 2013. And he's like, hey, you know, about four years ago, three and a half years ago, it just felt like God was saying, plant a church in Moxie. And we talked about it and prayed about it, and we just, we want to see it happen, but we just need the right person to come and, and lead that, and, and I was like, that's crazy, because about three and a half years ago, I was like, I, I think you're calling us to plant a church, and, and where is that going to be, and, and God's narrowed our focus down to the Yakima Valley, and we just thought, I know God wants us to come here, but how, and that meeting just solidified everything. And, and it was a, kind of a beautiful connection and experience. And um, it's just God's way of orchestrating things that I, I never would have, um, I never could have worked out on my own. But, but the reason why I say that is I, I do want to elevate God, but I want, to, I want us to see how when, when redemption happens, there's a perpetuation of, of other people's work. Okay, we, we didn't just show up and just invent this idea. You know, God's been at work from the beginning, and God's been working in people and through people from the beginning. We didn't just show up here. We're, we're not in reinventing these things. And so, so, I got this text message from Luke, and he, he won't mind if I share it. Maybe he'll listen to it and go, yeah, I just got my name mentioned in a podcast. I don't Probably not. Nobody's listening to the podcast. That's right. um, excited for you guys today. Know I'm celebrating with you in spirit as you move into the new building today. We all know a building is not a church. We are the church. But definitely awesome to see God continuing to move in that dream he gave us so many years ago. Love you all. I think that's worth sharing with you guys, isn't it? Amen? Praise the Lord for that. See... 
See, God, this, God's redemption ensures perpetuation. It ensures that, that what he has done before will continue on. Even when, even when a church closes its doors and moves out, and that building lies empty for 10 years, it's not over. God's still going to do things. That's how we got this building. Because a church who wasn't meeting there, who disbanded long ago, it said, take our old building, sell it, take the money, and buy some property in Moxie, and that's exactly what we did. It sounds really simple. It's a little more complicated. But God is working. He has done things, and He will continue to do things, and He's doing things through people because God redeems through human means. Recognizing both the living and the dead. And so, redemption is about people. Redemption ensures perpetuation. Redemption finally restores life. That's what's going on here. Life. Redemption is about life. It's about restoration. It's about, it's about reviving. It's about returning what was, what was once thought lost and gone and dead and discovering that it's alive. Boaz and Ruth in verse 13, they're married. She becomes his wife. He went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. It means they got married and they consummated their relationship and, and look who gets the credit. God caused the conception. The Lord gave her conception. And she bore a son. Whoa. This is big news. This, in one short sentence, the author goes, oh yeah, and everything worked out. They all lived happily ever after. It's kind of like, that's what he's saying. I'm like, I want to hear more about this. Like, what else was going on? But God was doing that. Giving life. And so then, the women of the city, the ones who said, is this Naomi? This bitter woman who has come back? She looks similar, but she sounds like a different person. She doesn't sound pleasant anymore. She's bitter. The same women, they, they, they praise God. They, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. That word restore is the word we've seen that we saw at the beginning of this story. Return. It would be kind of awkward to translate it. He shall be to you a returner of life. Because we don't really have a word like that. But that's basically what the author is saying. That's what the women are saying. Did you catch that? Because at the beginning of the story, Naomi returned back from Moab to Bethlehem empty. Nothing. Death was all around her. And that's what she was looking forward to as well. But now, blessed be the Lord. He has given you a restorer a returner of life. He has returned life to you. God has done this. They acknowledge that. And then they continue on. We see Naomi has the child on her lap. And, and you know, that's a, that's a sign of she 
She has an intimate, um, personal responsibility for this child, uh, probably more likely than anything. She is going to help raise that child at either either on her own while Ruth continues to, to work and glean, or they're going to tag team it together. But she is going to become his nurse. And the women, they exclaim again, a son has been born to Naomi. And they, they credit the son to, to Naomi. They, they say, it's her son. And they name him Obed. And I, name's not very common in the Old Testament, but the basic meaning of that name is he's a servant. And I can't help but think that this Obed, this little Obed, who's a servant to, to his, his, is a blessing, a redeemer, a restorer of life in Naomi and in Ruth and, and is going to perpetuate their family. This redemption is going to carry on for generations. She, he, he's this servant to them. He's giving them what they really need. And, and I, I can't help but see God in that. God, the one who serves us. The God who is not so grand and so big and so awesome that he doesn't care about you and me. Because he said Jesus. Jesus said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. God caused this conception. God restored life and still restores life and God serves his people. And the, this, the whole story of Ruth is wrapped up with this little epilogue, this little genealogy. Now these are the generations of Perez. This is, this is the genealogy and let's recount Perez all the way down to Boaz and Obed and then Jesse and then David and and there's no mention of, who, who's this David? Most of you have a hunch. We, we, all we have to do is kind of turn a few pages. And we read that David is a man after God's own heart. He is, he is, he is Israel's archetypal king. This genealogy is a, a king. And, and Boaz and Ruth and Obed were part of that. And, and I've thought about this. Why these genealogies? What's going on here? What's the purpose here? I think the people who are reading this story were wondering, does God care about our generation? Is God, does God still redeem like he did in Ruth's family and, and, and her life? And, and in that story, is he still doing things today in our generation? And by putting this genealogy, tacking it on there, showing that this little story was a part of a much bigger story, a part of the story that the, the readers, they were a part of. They were a part of that story. And we, today, are part of that story as well. That's the truth of when we're reading God's word. It's not just for people long ago. It's not just about ancient cultures and customs and sandals and, and feet and, you know, you name it. It's about what God is doing and even still doing. God 
restores life. That we may know life. That's our God. That's what's happening here. It's the story of of Ruth. It's not that Boaz is the hero, or Ruth is the hero, or Obed is the hero, or or, or Naomi Naomi is some kind of a um, a, a helpless um, would be heroine. The story is how God restores life. He is the restorer of life. And, and the bitter circumstances that Naomi went through and experienced, we talked about those. We felt them. We've gone through them. Many of you are still going through them. But when we read Ruth and we see how the story ends, where the story doesn't really end, because this genealogy says this story continues on, we can be assured that God is not finished writing our stories. Right? He's still working. He's still redeeming. He's still restoring life. And, and oftentimes those bitter circumstances, they're just the very pathways that God is leading us on to discover life in Him. I was, um, I was speaking with an individual this past weekend um, who has gone through some really difficult circumstances. Very despondent to the point of of really wanting to end it. And I've talked with him for a few times, and as we spoke again, I I, I had to ask him like, what's what's going on in in your life? What's what's really been troubling you? And as we as we talked, and and he, he shared more and more. I heard this. I heard stories of of a father who was harsh and violent and abusive, and and then the a, a, a story of a mother and a stepfather who uh, who were neglectful and they're uncaring and apathetic. I, I heard story of of a, a wife that he married who who rejected him and uh, made accusations toward him and was unfaithful toward toward him. And here he is. It's, Going, why, why am I so depressed? Why am I so, uh, why am I so suicidal? And I said, do you think the fact that all of the people in your life who should love you and should care about you and should welcome you have rejected you? I think I hit a nerve with him. Because that made him very uncomfortable. And it also caused him to think, yeah, I never thought about that before. Maybe that is it. So then when the question I asked next was, what's your view of God? What do you think about God? Well, he's not very happy with me. He's judged me. He doesn't really care about me. 
Is God like all the people that you have experienced, all, all, all of the terrible people in your life? Do you think God would, would do that to you? Do you think God is a kind of God? Is God your father, your earthly father, your abusive father? Does, does God neglect and, and accuse? And, and, and does, God, um, does God act with uncaring, angry violence towards you? Or is God saying, draw near to me? Psalm 2710, for my father and mother have rejected or abandoned or left me. But the Lord lets me in. The Lord says, you're welcome here. God says, you're welcome here. I want you to know me. That's not who I am. I am not the one who casts you out. I am the one who draws you near. I'm the one who cares about your life. I'm the one who welcomes you back as, as a father welcomes back his prodigal son. Uh, he's the one who adopts you, calls you his child. He's the one who pours out his grace upon you. He's a God of, of mercy and, and forgiveness and restoration. That's the God who comes to us in this story. God, the restorer of life. He worked his providence through the entire story and he's not done working it yet. He's still working it through you and me and he makes it possible through the ransom that the Son of Man came to give. He came to serve, to give his life as a ransom. That was the price of redemption. That's redemption. This God who restores us so that we may know life wants us to know Him. So that Jesus would say, I am the way and the truth and the life. And then He would pray to His heavenly Father in John 17 saying, and this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's restoration. God cares about the people in this place, and He cares about the people all around us. And His work of redemption, He does through you and me, through human means. But He's doing that so that we'll have life. And eternal life is knowing Him. Yes! One day, one day when we breathe our, our last breath and we go to be with God, but so that we would know Him here. He has life for us right now. By faith in Him. He lived a perfect life. He died a death we should have died. And He raised, He rose to new life so that we could walk in newness of life. He came not to kill, steal, and destroy, but to give life abundantly. God is a restorer of life so that we would, so that we might know that life. And to know Him is just, not just knowledge, not just facts and figures, but to actively know Him, to live with Him, to learn Him. So, maybe we should do like the characters in the story had done. 
did. They trusted God. You can see that by the way they waited patiently, but, and, but also waited expectantly. It, they, you can see this by the way they credited God for the things that were going on in, in their life. But they didn't just sit back and go, I'm in a terrible circumstance. I wish God would do something about it. They gleaned. They harvested. They conversed about it. They schemed and plotted. They acted according to God's revealed will, and they did what was right and good. They acted as worthy men and worthy women. They learned to do that, and we do that as well as we trust God not only for our salvation, but we act. We, we follow him. We, we learn Jesus. We take steps of righteousness, and we take steps to live the worthy life that God has called us to live in His presence and by His grace. And then we bless God, like the characters are doing here. Blessed be the Lord. That's that, that's that Hebrew phrase for we give Him thanks for these things. It's a good time of year. To have a, a to, to be in a story about harvest and about giving thanks, isn't it? Please take a moment to turn off all of the noise and reflect on the redemption that was purchased for you in Christ this Thanksgiving week. And thank Him. Make it a week of blessing God for all that he has done for us that we could not do for ourselves. Take time to bless him for the life that you can live in his presence and you can walk with him day by day because he lives. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for loving us. I thank you for redeeming us. God, you, you have done for us what we could not do, what, what we so desperately needed. You made a way for us to be with you, not just for eternity, but today. We can walk with you, we can know you, we can follow you and learn from you. By your grace, we will trust you. By your grace, we will, we will act in obedience to you as, as the characters of this story did. And by God's grace, we will thank you. We will give you blessing for the things that you have done. We thank you, God, for your amazing grace to us, to redeem us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends.